start that. So today is the uh, commemoration. I don't know if y'all pay attention to the liturgical calendar or anything like that. And if you don't, well, that's okay. Um, I would encourage you if you want to. It's a good thing to do. Um, I usually go off of, uh, if y'all like apps, download an app. And no, I do not get a commission from CPH for this, but uh, the uh, Treasury of Daily Prayer is a great thing to have on hand for daily devotions if you don't want to carry around a huge book. Uh, the Pray Now app, it's a good app to have, and it gives you a reading, gives you like a psalm, uh, Old Testament reading, New Testament reading, uh, writing from a church father, uh, a piece of a hymn, a prayer of the day, and if there's a commemoration for this for that specific day, it tells you a little bit more about the day. So today is com uh, the commemoration of Philemon, uh, Philemon and Onesimus. Um, and there's also a suggested reading from the Book of Concord. So it's one of those things you can pick and choose what you do in a day. If you want to do all of it, that's awesome. Uh, but today is a commemoration of Philemon and Onesimus. Y'all know who those guys are, right? Yeah? yeah? I forgot. You forgot. <laughs> <laughs> I'll read a little bit for you. Because uh, it's, it's, this, is, this is from the Pray Now app of the Treasury Daily Prayer. Uh, Philemon was a prominent first century Christian who owned a slave named Onesimus. Although the name... Although the name... The name uh, man, bells are tough for me. Onesimus means useful. Onesimus proved himself useless when he ran away from his master, and perhaps even stole from him, as we see in Philemon 18. Somehow, Onesimus came into contact with the Apostle Paul while the latter was in prison, possibly in Rome, and through Paul's proclamation of the gospel, he became a Christian. After confessing to the Apostle that he was a runaway slave, um, that he was a runaway slave, Onesimus was directed by Paul to return to his master and become useful again. In order to help pave the way for Onesimus's peaceful return home, Paul sent him on his way with a letter addressed to Philemon, a letter in which he urged Philemon to forgive his slave for running away and to receive him as you would receive me, no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother. The letter was eventually included by the church as one of the books in the New Testament. Okay. Yeah, you got it. All right. So the prayer of the day centers around this commemoration. So let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you sent Onesimus back to Philemon as a brother in Christ, freeing him from his slavery to sin through the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Cleanse the depths of sin within our souls and bid resentment cease for past offenses that by your mercy we may be reconciled to our brothers and sisters, and our lives will reflect your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So, alrighty. Chapter 4 in Has American Christianity Failed? Before we begin with the, the discussion questions and everything, did, what did y'all think about this chapter? Just hot takes. What did y'all think? Any thoughts? Well, I don't know. I had a lot of comments on question three, but we'll get to that. Oh, we'll get to it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. Question three has to do with Genesis 3.15. All right. It's a good one. 
Did y'all enjoy it? Yeah. Did you have... Did, did you not enjoy it? <laughs> you know? It's one of those things. Actually, I did this when I was at home with the deep freeze. I couldn't make it into work. So I worked ahead a week. Nice. <laughs> yeah. For me, very unusual. Yeah. I did that too. Thanks be to God. Two weeks ago. So now I'm like, what did we say? Yeah, what did we say? Chapter which? We're on yeah, the right. same page. Yeah. That's all right. That's all right. We'll, we'll remind each other of what's going I on. I work with the fellow named, um, actually, Oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> he was a big man. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, um, yeah, it's, I, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff here in this chapter. Um, there are even some things, in, and I mentioned this this morning in class, I, 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 I'm not a big fan of, of, of the questions they have for these uh, discussions because they don't really... They don't really create discussion all that much. They just kind of, a lot of them are like yes and no questions. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. that gives everybody who should participate a reason to cop out and just say, yeah, or nah. And that's all they say, you know. So I, as, as your pastor, I'm going to facilitate conversation a little bit more and, and actually like prod things along if I can here. So um, with this uh, chapter... We see a lot, uh, well, we see this claim that uh, Pastor Wolfmuller puts forward that uh, much of American Christianity is focused on the Christian and not on Christ. Now, do y'all think that's a fair assessment? Yeah. Yeah? Uh, is it, so you think he's right in that regard? I mean, it's, it's, it's a very basic statement. Right. How is he right about that? Well... Some churches, um, I, I don't know what church, what church was Billy Graham with? Was he Baptist? Uh, yeah, or? Baptist, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, they're the biggest works church uh, you have ever seen. You know, it, it's fabulous. It's phenomenal. The works that they can create. Oh, yeah, they do great do. stuff. Yeah, but Samaritan's then, personal. You know, yeah. I, that doesn't have anything to do with being saved by grace or the resurrection. But maybe they believed that too. I oh, sure. didn't see it. So there's there's probably... Uh, uh, um, yeah, I know. It, it's, it's tough being a Lutheran sometimes. And I, I think I addressed this a little bit with my sermon on Sunday where it was like, you know, um, we err on the side of grace a lot. And sometimes that's even to our detriment because mm -hmm. then we won't begin to talk about works, right? Uh, works have their place, right. but you got to get grace in its proper place before you talk about that stuff, right? right? So yeah, and 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 um, yeah. So in a lot of ways, there are a lot of uh, church bodies in America for sure that do focus on the works of a Christian, um, uh, as opposed to what makes them a Christian first and foremost. You know, I think I think Pastor Wolf Miller talked before about how a lot of times. Um, the gospel is only for those who don't believe. And then after they've heard the gospel, then they just, they only hit people with the law, right? Because now that you're saved, now it's time to get to work. Mm -hmm. As opposed to being reminded that you're saved, as opposed to being reminded because you're a sinner mm -hmm. that Christ died for you. And, and, and that's what 
makes you capable and able to do good works now, right? So in that sense, yeah, Amer- a lot of American Christianity is focused on the Christian, how they're doing, you know, um, are they bearing good fruit or are they not? Uh, what is it? He said something about how he took a journal, right? He, he kept a journal. It's at the bottom of page 73. He said, I kept a journal of my prayers through college. I was convinced that the law was capable and doable, uh, convinced that I could, with God's help, live a life that was pleasing to him. Right? Uh, he said, I, um, I put myself at the center and Jesus was on the sidelines, sometimes coaching, uh, sometimes forgiving, sometimes smiling, but mostly shaking his head in disappointment. Right? I mean, and, and he says, you know, I was, I was striving and grasping for an elusive obedience to God's hidden will. Uh, I didn't despair that I couldn't keep the law, only that I didn't keep it. Right? It, did what he is what he said something that resonates with you a little bit, on some level? Mm-hmm. Been there. Been there. It, so, I guess that kind of leads to that question: Have you seen this, and have you, well, for lack of a better question, fallen for it? Have you have you fallen for that kind of thinking? You know. Um, you don't have to go into details, well, but if you'd like to, I had, I had a different yeah. land on it. I mean, yeah, go ahead. What I had written out is no, I hadn't fallen for it. But if you look at focus on a Christian, there's a church downtown that has a service one or two on Saturday night, three or four on Sunday morning, and then the Sunday afternoon. It's like they're catering to everybody, persons who. Don't want to come on Sunday morning or whatever. Oh, oh, interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they're like they have this all these is services. It's not a priority for you. It's no. it's not it's not your priority. I mean, if you're if you think worship is important, mm. you're gonna show up whether it's at 7 30 or 10 30 or mm. whatever. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, uh, and, and certainly there's an issue of capacity there, but at a certain point... Well, not in that church. Either. Yeah, there's like that a church is huge accommodation mm-hmm. at some point as well. So yeah, okay, that's, that's an interesting uh, take on that, that American Christianity is focused on the Christian in that sense that they're going to try and cater to you as much as possible with times and availability, yeah, yeah, programs all right, yeah. and all these things. Yeah, okay, awesome. interesting, interesting. Yeah, okay, I can see that. I can see that. Um, uh, you know, not that programs and some accommodation aren't bad, but I think was it we got a call, we got a phone call the other day. I don't know who it was, but somebody was coming in from out of town, and they just they were like, "We're gonna be." I didn't get the call. Um, our secretary did, and I said, and, and she said, "I got a call from somebody." It said, "They're gonna be in town for some wedding." And they were wondering if we provided childcare on Friday nights. <laughs> and I said, and, and, and she said, no, we don't, we don't do that. And the guy was like, oh, okay, well, thanks. And then he's with the phone. And I, I asked, I was like, was he even like Missouri Senate or anything? He's like, I don't know. He didn't say anything about that. And I was just like, oh, wow. Okay. Well, I mean, you know. And, yeah, catering. Well, places, places, I mean, churches can have that, but it's like, well, at some point, we might have something like that, but I don't think we're going to have anything just every single night or every Friday or, or what. I mean, you know, at some point, you know, the business of the church is to proclaim salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And if things don't lead to that, 
I mean, you got to kind of wonder why you're doing all this other stuff. So yeah, I mean, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, I, I, I think I, you know, I've seen it before. It's like, if things, if things in the church don't lead to the font and to the altar and to the pulpit, then you got to kind of wonder what's the point of doing them, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the, the main point is the proclamation of the gospel, right? So it's very interesting. Um, I didn't even think about that, James. It's a good take. Um, so if, the, if, a, if American Christianity is focused more on the Christian than on Christ, uh, I guess it, he gets into this a lot in this chapter. Um, I, and we'll talk about it in other places more in depth about like the sacrificial system. But if the Old Testament, you know, how do they view the Old Testament then? If they're preaching more about the Christian than Christ, um, you know, how, how do they view the Old Testament typically? I know I'm kind of skipping around, but I think it's a good question, right? In my experience, there's a failure to take the Old Testament seriously or even to read it very closely. Mm, so okay. It's almost dismissed out of hand as something that was for a different time and place and doesn't really have relevance for most of our lives. Interesting. So I've, I've grown up around folks who really thought reading Leviticus was a burden, you know, that was imposed upon them. Which, I mean, you can identify yeah. when you get to the genealogies, but oh, yeah. but it was deeper than that also. It was like there's yeah. there's nothing directly edifying here. And, and that's mm-hmm. contrary to the scriptural take on scripture. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would love to do a Bible study on Leviticus. Um <laughs> Because we have a, a, you know, our publishing house, Concordia Publishing House, has a commentary series, um, and we, we we did not, not too long ago, we did a, a Bible study on Hebrews, and the same guy who wrote the commentary for Hebrews also wrote the commentary for Leviticus, and all, all throughout Leviticus, it is just full of pointing you to where Christ can be found in this system and how it points to him and all and all and all these things so i don't know if i'll draw a whole lot of people by doing a a bible study on leviticus uh, without some explanation right Uh, but yeah so yeah people might see the old testament as something that is a burden to read because you just go well you know it it it, the genealogies i think honestly I love I love the Bible, but I do find like reading Ezra is really really hard to read. It's just nothing but accounting and and numbers is a little tough too sometimes. Um, but yeah, the ones that just put forward a bunch of information, it's it's tough, but it does tell you something, right? You got to look past these things to what it's really pointing at. Right? This so, is yeah. maybe a side a, a rabbit to chase. That's all right. I Go listened ahead. to a to a recording of Ezra. You know of um. Hang on, a roof that was done in Hebrew by a rabbi one time. And he chanting along, you know, cantillating the Hebrew text. And yeah. then he gets to the end where the genealogy happens and he literally bursts into song and oh, wow. sings it. You know, interesting. Because that is apparently the most interesting section of the book, aesthetically. <laughs> and, and I was like, wow, what an inversion of the way I read that. But then I got to thinking, it is through Ruth that you go get Boaz and David mm-hmm. and all these promises that point directly to yeah. Christ. I don't know if that's why the Jewish rabbi was singing it. Probably not, but it's still the most salient part of Ruth if you're reading Ruth correctly. Right, that's very interesting. Know? Yeah, because it's the most 
Christ-centered or the Christ mm -hmm. most directly revelatory of Christ. Interesting. Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. Maybe, maybe he was because of the seed of David and everything like that. And, I think so. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> whether or not he believes, you know, he believes that about Jesus or not, and that that's a different question. But yeah, that's interesting. I didn't. I wouldn't have thought that. I don't think Leviticus gives us that bad. No, it's not. I don't. Think, <laughs> I don't think it's that bad either. It's actually pretty interesting. It's, it's, pretty, interesting. it's pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you look at, you know, like my brother died not too long ago, and according to that, I'd had to marry his wife, which he didn't have. But, you know, <laughs> lucky you. Yeah, very lucky me. Oh man. <laughs> and if you dive into things like capital punishment or something, I mean, you just—it's all old testament. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's it, there. There is, uh, you know. It's actually kind of funny. We we derived in the church, even through the Reformation, uh, from the Levitical code, proper uh, proper understanding of affinity and consanguinity when it came to marriage rules and things like that. You know that according to the Levitical code, you should not marry. Uh, your stepmother or your stepfather or you should not mm. marry your half-sister or half-brother or, or so many cousins or whatever removed or whatever uh, or because of the rules of affinity and consanguinity so you share a bloodline or something like that we get that from the Levitical code and even our Lutheran forefathers still uphold that to this to, to, the, to their time and we look to them and say yeah it's actually a good thing to Hold on to. I mean, yeah. yeah, genetic. I mean, God knew what he was doing yeah. when yeah. it came to that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it is very interesting. Very interesting. So, maybe we should do it on Leviticus. I don't, we'll see. I'll, I'll take it into consideration. Well, I think he had Romans on the next reoccurring. Yeah, I like Romans. Romans is good, but, uh, well, either way, Romans and Leviticus, they would both take some time, but we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. So, okay. when it comes to the Old Testament, you know, Pastor Wolf Miller says, and I believe too, and I've said it before, the Old Testament is all the Old Testament is all about Jesus. So, and he mentions three texts from the New Testament that say we should actually pay attention to the Old Testament. You know, there's uh, John. This is sorry, on page seventy-seven, right? Um, uh, wait, six. Sorry, seventy-six to seventy-seven. Yeah. So John five. Uh, Luke 24 and then Acts 10 and John 5 says, you know, uh, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life, right? And then uh, at, uh, Luke, Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, when he's speaking to them and saying, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then Acts 10, where Peter's preaching uh, at the seaport of Joppa, uh, where he says, To him, um, when it comes to Christ, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Right? So in these three texts, we see uh, that... The prophets bear witness of the coming Messiah, uh, that it is about the promise of the Messiah, but also his suffering, death, and resurrection, and that that leads to our understanding that the Old Testament proclaims justification, right? So out, out of those three texts, which one 
which one made the most profound impact on you? I think that's not a bad question. Which one was the most compelling, I guess you could say? We all think. Well, I can jump in. I got Go ahead. Yeah, please. I put the Acts 10 because the other two are, were focused at the Pharisees, and Acts 10 to me is like everybody. Yeah, and Luke 24 is about the disciples too, right? Because he's talking to the, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And yeah, I, one was the Pharisees, one was the disciples, and one was just to everybody, right? Um, so that's interesting. But anybody have any th thoughts on that? I mean, these are all three to, to three different groups, I guess you could say. Well, I said John 5 stood out. It's, it's one thing to read the Old Testament scriptures and not see Christ because you haven't been taught mm. where to see Christ. You know, that's one thing that somebody needs to point it out to you, like Philip in the chariot. Mm -hmm. But it's another thing to be actively searching for the truth and then to reject it when, it, when you see it. Which is, I think, more what the Pharisees were doing. Searching for the truth, okay. Searching for the Messiah and seeing it and not liking it. Right, yeah, because it's not matching up to your expectations, right. right? Those are kind of two different things in my book. Interesting. Okay, fair enough. Any other, any, anyone else want to jump in with what they thought about these three? There's no right or wrong answer, so <laughs> if you want to just jump in. Unlike Isaiah, because uh, well, I was always in the choir. And of course, you sing the Messiah. And all of, of Isaiah is telling you the foreshadowing sure. of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Suffering servant, yeah, all the different right. servant songs and things like yeah. that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it is interesting, though, because it's like if even if you're so focused on the New Testament, you know, I think it's kind of funny. I've. I guess it's not a bad thing, but, you know, they sell these Bibles that really are just only the New Testament, or they're like Psalms, Proverbs, and New Testament. Mm -hmm. It's not a bad thing, mm -hmm. but I, I've always kept myself from getting one of those, because I was like, I'd just like to have all of it if I can, you know, and they sell them compact enough where you can carry them around. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it's kind of interesting that in these, you know, if you're so concerned about the New Testament and you're really reading the New Testament— if you see things like this, and there are more besides these three, right? There are other places where the, you know, the law and the prophets bear witness to Christ. You know, and that's definitely said by Jesus himself or like by Abraham with the rich man and Lazarus, right? That, uh, that you know, they should look to Moses and the prophets and they'll be okay, that if you read those things, how can you not help but kind of see, okay, well then how is that true, right? How does the Old Testament really talk about Jesus, right? Um, so specifically about, I mean, we could go through many different places about the Old Testament, but we're going to get to the one that James really wants to talk about, Genesis 3.15, number, number three here, okay? Uh, in Genesis 3.15, we hear a pronouncement against the devil and his offspring, sin and death. Uh, had you heard this verse unpacked before the way that Pastor Wolfmuller does uh, on pages 79 through 80? Have you all heard this before? 
Not the way he did it. Not the way he did it. What are the, I guess, some of y'all are sh nodding, some of you are shaking your heads. So those who are nodding saying, yeah, you've heard it unpacked this way before. Was there, was there any nuances that he filled in for you? Or had you, it's pretty much just carbon copy of what you've heard before. It was a little new to me when he was talking about putting enmity between the woman and Satan opened the door for reconciliation between the woman and God. Yeah. That was, that was a little new. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, putting hostility in its proper place mm -hmm. as opposed to the hostility between God and man. It's now between, it's now where it ought to be, you know, between God and Satan and therefore, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's like denying Satan the victory right off the bat. Uh, by saying, no, Satan, it, and I've, I've heard it put, put this way before, that Satan thinks that he gets people on his side, but even God can use those people who are in league with Satan for good, you know? So even so, even though there are people out there who are heavily influenced or oppressed by demonic forces... Um, in the end, they're still not really for Satan, and God can still use them in some way, whether they believe it or not. You know, I mean, all things work for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose, right? I think it's kind of an interesting thing that right off the bat, Satan just cannot win no matter what he does. So have you all thought about that, that way before, too? It's kind of an interesting uh, thread to pull. Oh, well, Satan's already lost. Yeah. He's, just, he's in denial. He's just fighting a uh, losing battle. Yeah. He's going to try and take as many as he can with him on the way out, but yeah. that's about it. But, um... That's yeah. big. What's that? That's big. It is big, yeah. I mean, it's nothing to mess around with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nothing to scoff at, for sure. Um, Satan's craftier than we give him credit for, I think. Um, but James, you had something for, oh, yeah, for three so, there. Yeah, I read that thing and I go seed and I uh, mm. actually uh, got a couple of different old Bibles out of the woodwork and mm -hmm. they all say seed. Mm -hmm. what, what is the meaning of seed here? I mean, seed, women have eggs. Seed That's to right. me is something of the plant kingdom. Okay, so, and I, and I double checked this. I said it this morning thinking I knew what I was talking about and it turns out that I did. So that's a good thing. Um, <laughs> Well, because because wow. the because the yeah, no, right because the upcoming text for Sunday, the gospel text, is the parable of the sower. Yeah, there you go. And when and and when he's sowing the seed, it's a seed. Uh, it's it's uh, in, in in Greek, it's a spore. That's where we get the word for a spore. You know, um, but this kind of seed is different. Okay, so there are two different types of seed in in the Greek rendering of it. And even in the Hebrew, I'd actually have to look up the Hebrew, but I, I tend to like the Septuagint um, for different reasons. But I need to brush up on my Hebrew. But in the Greek, um, when you see the word seed, um, can y'all just take a guess for what, what word would, I guess, can y'all take a guess of what the Greek word might be? 
<laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> this is like a PG thirteen part of our our. Uh... Aren't they talking about offspring? That's right, but with the sperma. That's right. So it would be. Uh, I, I think it's. I think this is how you would spell it. <laughs> yeah. So sperma. Not how I would spell it, but. <laughs> spell it well, that's the Greek. That's the Greek. You know it. Sigma pi eta uh, uh, mu and alpha. alpha. Yeah, sperma. Yeah. Um, I don't know, the accent might be right there or something like that. But um, Yeah, but it would be sperma, you know? Sperm, right? So it would be the understanding that if somebody was reading that, it, it, they would say, how is it literally that, you know, he's going to put enmity between the seed of Satan and the sperma of the woman. They don't have that, right? Women don't have this. They don't, they don't have that specific thing. They have eggs. Men have the seed. Like what are you saying with the seed of, um, the seed or the offspring of Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, David, that from their seed, from their offspring, they would have uh, descendants that would number the, the sands on the seashore and the stars in the sky, right? That sort of thing. So that's where you get it. And so when you say it like that, it is, it is a um, first proclamation of the virgin birth, right? Because it just doesn't, a virgin birth doesn't happen apart from some divine intervention, right? Uh, and, and we get this cleared up for us the more we go on in scripture with Isaiah and, 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 and also uh, up to the virgin birth with Mary, right? So, yeah. That, does that clarify your, your thought on that a little bit more? So her... Yeah, well, it's... Her seed. <laughs> yeah. But it's, she didn't have a seed. Right, so <laughs> it would be something that would be half... That would have to be divinely begotten, and that's another thing that has, that's attached to this as well. That anytime you you hear about a begetting of children, it's always talking about the father who begets somebody. You know, so mm -hmm. Abraham begat Isaac, who begot Jacob. You know, um, who begot Judah and all the rest of his you know twelve sons and everything like that. So. Um, it was one of the, it's it's one of these things that because of the genealogies, the man carries the seed, and therefore the name from the man carries on with the children, with the sons, and things like that, right? And so the begetting, a woman doesn't beget, right? She can't she can't beget without the man, right? So it's one of those things that this would not make a whole lot of sense, and that's why he says it's kind of a riddle that needs to be unpacked. You cannot understand this apart from understanding what we know about the virgin birth, right? That scripture needs to interpret scripture on this issue so that we can really understand what he means by the seed. Because like you said, a woman doesn't have a seed. How, how does it happen? By the power of God. Um, by the, um, uh, you know, being conceived by the Holy Spirit, right? kind of cool that the text is written in a way that you can't understand it on natural terms. You have to imagine a miracle to make any sense out of this. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
It was kind of purposely written to not make sense. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. so you have to stop and think about it. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yes. Yeah. You have to stop and think about it. The Holy Spirit has to enlighten you with the eyes of faith to see what it really means. Right. Um, yeah. No, it's a great question, though. Great question. Any any other thoughts on these points? These these five points that he talks about. I mean, I thought it was kind of interesting when he said, you know, uh, that the offspring of the devil is sin and death because angels and demons can't have children. They can't reproduce like people can. So from Satan, you know, he is the father of lies, right? And, and from, from him comes sin and death uh, that he perpetrates with mankind in the beginning, right? They have some sort of, strange consummation that brings forth sin and death, if you think about it that way. Um, and then reconciling himself, you know, that, that putting enmity bet between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. Um, oh, no, it's bruising and crushing. I prefer the word crush. It's, it's, so there you go again. The devil yeah. can't have children, so how can he have a seed? Yeah, how can his, yeah, it's more of a spiritual understanding of the offspring kind of thing, right? Um, yeah, so, uh, or is it, right? Because evil is manifested in more than just spiritual ways. So it's because of death, right? Physical death, spiritual death, that sort of thing. Uh, you can go as deep as you want on that one. Yeah. But let's, 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 let's keep going. So uh, what does he say? Um that only God can destroy the devil, only God can crush Satan. It must be that this man will also be God, right? And that he will die but not stay dead. That he, that the seed of the woman does not have his head crushed but only his heel, right? Um, that he takes great pain and harm to himself, but in the end he prevails and triumphs. Uh, but that's, I think it's a beautiful thing that he says here, you know, God takes the threat. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And turns it into a stunning promise that you ate of it, but I will die. Right? All right. Any any more thoughts about that? No. I'm leaving silence here, so y'all can come in if you want to. I don't want to steamroll over anybody. Um. Um. One thing I do want to touch on before we get to the sacrificial system, what did y'all think about the his, his claim that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was Adam and Eve's church on page uh, 78? Did y'all stop and think about that for a minute? Yeah. Yeah, what do you think about that? By the way, he didn't... as. As smart as Pastor Wolfmuller is and, and as good of a teacher as, as he is, he, did, he didn't get that on his own. He actually got that from Luther, I believe. Um, he would have quote, I'm sure he would have quoted Luther, but I read it before about, because I think I was doing some sermon prep on Genesis and the fall and everything like that, and I wanted to read what Luther had to say, and that's exactly what Luther says, that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is Adam and Eve's church. Uh, because 
all the other trees are given them to eat, but this is the one tree where they have to go, and when they see it, they have to be reminded of God's promise, what will happen if they partake, right? It's the one place where they remember his law that is given to them, the one law that he gives them uh, to not eat of it. And there's a promise attached to it. And for them, this law is a joyous thing, right? Because they have no sin. Law is not a burden at this point in time. So when they see this, this, this tree, they are reminded of what God commanded them and it is a joyful thing because all they have to do is just not eat it and they won't die, right? What do y'all think about that? Well, it all depends on how you define church. <laughs> last I heard, I was listening to it, Issues Etc. podcast. Huh? Yeah. Last I heard, the Greek definition or the Greek word for church means like more of a community. Mm, okay. More community or a congregation, not necessarily a place, but more like a gathering of people. Yeah. yeah the ecclesia. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. So that definition doesn't apply. Um. Yeah. Well, I guess it depends on. Well, ecclesia means the calling out. You know, the gatherings of those who are called out. It used to be a term for uh, more of the Greek city-state, the civic meetings that they would have. Mm -hmm. And so it would be like you're called out for a special purpose of meeting together. So I guess the purpose of the meeting is what really matters in that context. Is, it, it, it also matters in that context as well. You know, the gathering of the people around what, right? And it is, and that's what Luther was saying, was that it would be the gathering, it would be the place where Adam would gather with his family for all his generations and say, this is the word that God spoke to me concerning this tree and the promise that's attached to it. And this is what I'm passing on to you. So it's like, in that sense, it would be a church in a way. Um, it would just be very different from our understanding of church today because we're, we have so much more to deal with because we have sin that screwed everything up, right? <laughs> so, Does this kind of make sense? So the tree and this building are both physical places where mm. the word of God is manifest to a community of believers. That's exactly right. There yeah, you go. yeah, that, that's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly right. Now think of it this way, and this is kind of to not to throw a wrench in your thinking, but Luther goes even further, and he's and, and usually. How do you see the tree? Is it just one tree? Yeah. Usually that's how it's depicted, right? Just one tree. Luther believed that it was a whole grove of trees, that it was a type of tree that was spread out throughout the garden. So that no matter where you were in the garden, when you came across this tree, you would be reminded of what God said. And that if your family was over here, you can have a gathering at this particular tree, remembering what God had commanded and things like that. I mean, it's a speculation on, on Luther's part. I think he's got something there that's kind of interesting. You don't have to believe that. You can believe it's just a single solitary tree, but it's kind of an interesting thought that, that it's, it's really a type of tree that's spread out throughout the garden. And, you know, you would encounter it regularly, no matter where you were. You know, you don't have to believe that, but just think about what that means, you know, 
So um, the word tree in Hebrew, which in this translation is singular, what was it? What's that? The word tree in the Hebrew. Yeah, I, I'd have to look into that. In fact, you know, I think... translated as singular. What's that? Yeah, I know, but it could mean like a type, like this tree, the Hebrew is ambiguous. It's, it, it can take on a certain number of meanings depending on the context. Luther saw it as like a genus or like a species of tree um, because that's because the, the Hebrew is ambiguous in that way. From what I understand, and, I, and I'm open to correction on this, and I could be wrong. Actually, you know what? Isn't it that the tree was in the center of the garden? Yeah. The yeah. Tree of so, life was in the center. This, okay, yeah. The tree of the tree of life. I can't remember what's that. Doesn't even matter. It kind of does. It kind of does. No, it's a different tree. Oh, never heard Yeah, it's a different tree. The tree of life is a different tree than the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. Because I mean, I can almost do that in English if I'm. You know, if I've got some, uh, I don't know, some species of mulberry on my place that's toxic or whatever, I could say to my three-year-old grandkid, you can eat from this tree, the good mulberry, but anytime you see this tree, don't eat from it. Mm. And I could be referring to the entire mm. group of trees, you know. Yeah, you could be referring to this one, don't those. eat it. Right. Well, that's the green mulberry with orange stripes or whatever. kind of tree. Yeah. Sure. It's, it's, it's... We'll an interesting thought. You'll find out, I'm sure. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. And and that's and anytime you're talking about the garden pre-fall, pre-fall into sin, you're obviously engaging in a lot of speculation. <clears throat> yeah. And it's a worthwhile experiment and thought. Uh, but in the end, that's kind of all it is. And you won't really know exactly what's going to happen or what, what happened and what it was exactly like. Uh, because there's no way you really can with our fallen minds, but it's kind of an interesting way to think. So, um, and so yeah, I was just curious about what y'all thought about that. I thought it was kind of an interesting thing that that tree is not for eating; it's for their believing, right? Um, and I could go into further speculations from Luther, but we don't have the time. It could be for another another class. <laughs> he was full of them. I love it. Um, he's such an interesting guy. Uh, all right, um, the Old Testament system, and so we're moving on a little bit here. The Old Testament sacrificial system points us to Jesus, number four, right? Mm -hmm. What does American Christianity do with the Old Testament in general and sacrifices in particular? And we already kind of answered that a little bit, um, that it's kind of ignored. But if, they, if someone who engaged in a lot of the American Christianity you know, um, ways of thinking that we've seen in this book... If they engaged with the Old Testament, how would they do so? How do you usually see people engage in the Old Testament? Um, the Ten Commandments. They'll look at the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do they usually see like the Levitical Code and the Ten Commandments and things like that? Well, the Levitical Code... It's like something that wouldn't apply to today. Right. Yeah. Because of all the laws of you can't eat shellfish or you can't, you know. Right. That doesn't apply to me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, what do I have to care about that? Right. I love bacon wrapped shrimp. That sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, have y'all ever heard, or have has it ever been characterized to y'all that the Old Testament sacrificial system? 
on some level was a kind of works righteousness. You know what I mean by that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Have you all ever heard it put that way before? Or at least alluded to? Maybe. Like well, it's it. I've heard yeah. so much, I've forgotten most of it. So. <laughs> well, so, so it, it, would it make sense to think of it that way? Because that's kind of how I saw it for a long time, mm -hmm. was that God gave the Levitical code. He gave the sacrificial system. And um, it seemed like if you did what God told you to do, he would bless you. Right? Mm -hmm. That just by the fact of it, it seems like on a very basic reading of the Old Testament, that if you simply do what God tells you to do, then he will smile upon you. And that in itself can easily lead to an understanding that, well, just follow the law. Just do what you're told and everything will be okay. And that's kind of a works righteousness, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so what I'm getting at is this, that um, if you see it that way, if you see the Old Testament sacrificial system as something that, that the Israelites did because God told them to do so, how is that different than, than offering sacrifices to Baal or to Asheroth or Molech or any of the other false gods if you're just doing it to curry their favor, yeah. right? That the sacrifices made were just because if we don't do this, then we won't get a good harvest. Right? I think that's something the Israelites did periodically, and you would see syncretism creeping up. Sure. Under, you know, kings like the Manasseh, where, yeah, I guess we sacrifice to Yahweh on Saturdays, but Moloch owns Monday and right. there's different times for different uh -huh. things, and we have a grove over here and an altar over there. That's right, yeah. And they're all to help us get nice and rich and have good harvests. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Very anthropocentric and sounds almost American. Yeah, it's very true. Very true. Just worship all the gods. Yeah, don't leave any of them out. That's what the Romans did. You know yeah. um, that that when they were conquering a land, they would they would sacrifice to that foreign god and be like, well, they'd conquer and be like, well, obviously your god loves us better, so you know what are you gonna do? <laughs> and, and so it's it, yeah. So if you see it. I, that's, that's really the way that I thought about the Old Testament sacrificial system. And it took a long time for me to reconcile what it really was about. That the Old Testament sacrificial system points to Jesus specifically. It is a type and shadow of the ultimate sacrifice that would take place on the cross, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we see that even at the beginning, that God is the one who commits the first sacrifice, and I've said this before in, a, in, in some Bible studies, but it's always worth repeating that when Adam and Eve, they, they sinned and they thought they could cover it up with fig leaves. And they thought, hey, this is, this is our attempt to cover our shame. And God said, that's not enough. Mm -hmm. right? That he had to kill an animal. Like you have to kind of interpret it this way. You have to read it into it a little bit, but it's not a far stretch to say that he made clothes for them out of animal skins. What do you have to do? To kill the animal, right? Mm -hmm. You gotta kill the animal, you gotta skin it, and then you gotta give it to them and tell them wear this, right? That's what it takes to cover your sin is shedding blood, right? Yep. Left even looking just like Fred Flintstone. Right, yeah. yeah. 
So, so the caveman wasn't far off. That's, that's, that's good. Yeah. So yeah, but it, you know, it's one of those things that every sacrifice on every altar off, offered by a priest, by every priest, is a preaching of the first promise that God would eventually make a sacrifice Himself fully for the atonement of sin of all mankind, right? Um, and like you said, Jake, that, that, that eventually even the Israelites, though they had this promise, um, they had this understanding, they should have had this understanding that even, there, even though there was a system and there were certain codes and regulations on how to do these things, that eventually they got tired of it on some level, or they had a syncretistic mindset where they brought in other gods just so they could cover all their bases, or they wanted, if you might, might entertain me a little bit here, they wanted variety in worship, as it were. Uh, <laughs> am I being a little uh, strong there? I don't know, but... Well, Moses but, left them for a little while. Yeah. He up on the mountain, he comes down there. They got a golden calf and everything. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, so, but, yeah, it doesn't take long, but that's why it's like, you know, when it, when it comes to worship itself, and I kind of went on a longer tangent this morning, but I won't go on a really long tangent here, but when it comes to uh, worship and liturgical, um, the liturgical understanding of like how service is carried out, there can be some variety there, but the thing is, is that uh, the reason why we have the elements there is because... I mean, they're good, right, and salutary for the edification of the church. And you don't just do away with those willy-nilly, right? Um, and the other thing is, is that um, just like the Israelites got bored, you know, I think someone said, like, well, in the sacrificial system, you didn't just have one sacrifice or two sacrifices a year. It was every single day. Every single day, animals are getting killed in the temple, it smells like a slaughterhouse. <laughs> Seriously, that's I, maybe part of the reason why they had to burn so much incense, right? So it wouldn't stink so bad. I mean, it was a bloody job to be a priest. You're a butcher, right? You're you're blood on. Yeah, you're sprinkling blood everywhere. You're you're putting entrails on the altar. You're 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 burning the sacrifice. You're doing all these things, and and it's just like. I mean, it is a visceral, really tough thing to be in the temple. I'm sure, and, I, and after a while, you probably get a little dulled to it. And after a while, you just kind of, you know, probably think to yourself, "Why well, this? Is, I kind of want to let's try something a little bit different or something." I don't know, but it's like the reason the reason why we typically want to stray from um, what's tried and true or whatever. And I'm not saying that. The way we do church is written in scripture that that's the way it must be done. But the thing is, is that it's important to say that when you begin to be bored with the things of God, when you begin to be bored with the word of God, and you become bored with uh, proclaiming praise and thanks for what God has done, you wind up uh, seeking after things you probably shouldn't. That's And it's just a warning, right? Uh, because of how things tend to go with our sinful flesh, right? Um, not that we can't innovate, not that we can't change or adapt. I mean, if we couldn't, then we'd probably still be either speaking Greek or Hebrew at this point in time. If we couldn't, 
we'd still be speaking German and worshiping in German instead of adapting to English, right? So there are things that are good for switching and for adapting for, but, you know, we got to be careful with what we do and not just, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of thing. You know, all right? So, okay. Obligatory. All right. <laughs> Statement there. All right. So the cross is our theology. Let's move on here. Uh, the cross is our theology. Our preaching and teaching centers on it. Uh, is the cross absent in American Christianity? What do y'all think? Is it absent? Well, every day I drive the work and back, I see the big cross down there in Kerrville. Mm -hmm. And I drive up and down Center Point Road and I see the crosses from the Holy Ghosters and the one that I have on my post. So I see them every day. Yeah. Yeah. But as far as our theology, though, I mean, I know we talked about there are some churches that don't have any crosses in the sanctuary. Mm -hmm. That's telling in itself. But for those that do have crosses in their sanctuary, but not in their theology, that's a little more subversive, right? Um, American Christianity in general, you know, if you would agree that much of American Christianity is focused on the Christian and not on Christ... I mean, then that in and of itself alludes to the um, either fact or possibility that the cross is absent, right? Um, because usually if people do talk about Jesus, what are they talking about Jesus for? What are they saying about him? To borrow from chapter one, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan yeah, for you. God loves you. Let's talk about you now. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's not talk about all the bloody things of Scripture and the agony that Jesus suffered and things like that, right? Because it's uncomfortable to talk about Jesus' suffering. Um, and yeah, it's like, has it been removed from more than just the sanctuary? And I would say yeah, in a lot of ways. Um, which is really tough because then some people might say, well, Pastor, they, you know, I go to church, or, you know, a family member of mine goes to church, and they talk about Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. But then that's the thing. It's like, well, what do they say about Jesus? And I, I really like what he said about, you know, issues, etc. Todd Wilkin um, asking the question, you know, um, where does he say that? Uh, page 83, where he says, you know, whenever he is analyzing a sermon, he asks, you know, is Jesus mentioned? Right? And then at the bottom in the footnote, the, the other questions are very uh, good too. Is, if Jesus is mentioned, is he the subject or the object of the verbs? That is, is Jesus the one acting or the one being acted upon? Right? If Jesus is, doing, is the one doing the acting, what is he doing? What are the verbs? Right? Is he healing? Is he preaching? Is he teaching? Is he dying? That sort of thing. Is he living? Uh, three, finally, what is the preacher telling me my problem is and what is the solution? Right? Those are all really good diagnostics to have. Um, and you should do that with my sermons. I would welcome you to do that with my sermons. I would love to know if I'm not preaching what I should be because I want to be, do, do the best I can with, with what I'm you know, supposed to be doing. Uh, and I'm supposed to be preaching Christ crucified, right? 
Um, so, speaking of Christ crucified, if you don't mind me moving on for the sake of time. Um, number six, Jesus' suffering and death on the cross centers on uh, the physical pain, shame, and spiritual agony, as he talks about, you know, page 84 and following, right? Um, why does modern theology tend to not preach or teach on this or the wrath of God? What do you think? Well, if they preach too much on law and the wrath of God, then some people wouldn't come back to Jerusalem. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, some people would just be like, ah, I don't know about that one. You know, it's just, it just doesn't make me feel good, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of, and I've, I've used this in a sermon before, and I never, I never. I never saw this movie before the pandemic, but you know, we had some time on our hands to and we like got Disney Plus or whatever for like the free month or whatever and watched Pollyanna, you know. Have y'all seen Pollyanna? No. It's one of those that's like it's okay. It's in in the end it's not the best moral of the story, but you know, think positively kind of thing. But the preacher in that he comes out and, and everyone's depressed going to church because all he does is just rail on them. And if you watch his sermon, like you probably find his sermon on YouTube. It's actually pretty great because he just, he comes in and just begins, death comes, death comes unexpectedly. You know, he's like, one minute you'll be alive and the next minute you're dead, that sort of thing. And he's like, so you need to repent, repent. That's, you know, all this stuff. And I was like, and, but, but then, but then he just leaves it there and he walks off, you know, and, and. And everyone's just like, all right, now it's time to go. <laughs> and it's funny because I was like, that would be a great sermon if he ended on the gospel, right? If, yeah. if, if he had the full balance there, for sure. Um, but he was talking about our repentance, what we have to do and all these things like that. Like, so in the end, he wasn't really preaching the cross, right? Uh, but yeah, people, when they hear the wrath of God... Uh, and maybe even if they hear the wrath of God meted out on Jesus Christ, they still probably wouldn't like that either. Um, because you're not telling them what to do on some level, right? Uh, it's not very practical in that way. It's not very applicable to what they're supposed to be doing in their lives now, right? Any other thoughts on that? So why else would, would modern theology tend not to preach or teach the agony, the pain, the shame that Christ suffered. Well, I think a lot of uh, a lot of people think you know technology. We can we're going to have a cure for cancer. Or we're gonna, <laughs> you know, we can we can beat our way out of it. We can outsmart them. <laughs> okay. So what? So. We're, we're evolving into something better um, than we used to be. We're, you know, I see what you mean. So what you mean is that you would, people would rather hear about the different ways we're advancing as opposed to how horrible we are and yeah. how much Christ yeah. needed to die for yeah, us. Pretty much I see what you mean. Okay. All right. It's hard to tell if people are more terrible today or just the news media, you know, because somebody's always in a drive-by shooting and right. all these people got killed, and it's terrible. But 
but a long time ago, there either weren't drive-by shootings, or there were other things, but we didn't hear about. Right. Hang them high. Hang them high. <laughs> they needed hanging, that sort of thing, right? Right. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think we're to the point of Noah's days yet. Yeah, well, I, I, it's funny you say that. Yeah, Noah's days that, mm -hmm. that they were... So bad that God said, forget it. Right. Gone. See, what's funny about that, I think it, I, I think it might be a little worse. <laughs> because <laughs> Really? Yeah, you know why? Because in Noah's day, they were at least um, marrying and giving away in marriage. We don't do that anymore. Oh. You know? <laughs> it's like, uh, now people just, people just live together, that. or they, or... or or they, um, you know, they just don't do anything. They get so involved in, you know, video games or, you know, uh, other vices and things like that. And just don't even worry about that. It's like, we're not even, we're not even marrying and giving away in marriage so much anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, so in that sense, it might be worse. Maybe it's not so bad. But the thing is, is that it's got to get worse before it gets better. In, in a certain sense that it's going to be very dark before Christ returns. That it's going to look like the church will be snuffed out and then right as it seems like satan is going to be victorious christ christ returns and you know declares his victory and fulfills it completely right but in europe they have a lot of big gigantic old cathedrals mm -hmm. and if you go there there are hardly any people that attend them or it's been turned into a museum or something right or a restaurant right yeah, yeah. Or a bookstore or something. Uh -huh. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, I've seen that too. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's a sign of the times. Uh, that um, yeah, it's a sign of the times. So to I guess add to this though, when it comes to the preaching of the cross, right? Um, what is it about? Was 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 there something that Pastor Wolfmiller talked about? Um, you know, suffering part one, two, or three that stood out to you the most. You know, so either physical pain, the shame, or the spiritual agony. Which one kind of hits you hardest? It's a sad fact that thousands of people underwent the first two under Roman um, leadership of the mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. But nobody has suffered part three except Christ. Yes. Mm -hmm. and so, so I think part three definitely makes the other two have meaning mm -hmm. as opposed to the death of any other condemned criminal under the Roman system. Right, because, yeah, because then it'd just be like any other guy. Mm. Yeah. Any other guy that was crucified. Yeah, that's a good point. Good point. Anybody else want to tackle that a little bit? Anybody else think that there's something else that really strikes hard? Can I grind an axe for 30 seconds? Sure. Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ completely misses the point. Okay. It makes a big scene of all the, the gore. Mm. It never mentions sin. <laughs> you know? Oh, interesting. And, uh, it's hollow. It's, it's just oh. another Roman crucifixion. <laughs> the gratuitous eyes of the American public, I suppose. Are oh, really? Yeah, I guess maybe maybe it needs to have a charitable spin put on it for you, you know, to get something out of it. But, yeah, yeah, I'm not saying you can't be edified by it. Sure. I'm just yeah. grinding my axe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was less than 30 seconds, but that's, that's okay. <laughs> no, yeah, I see what you mean, that there's... Um, it's definitely a movie for believers. 
it's not a movie for unbelievers. Right. Yeah. That's if you're going to make something out of that, you need theology from beyond mm-hmm. the movie. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For yeah. sure. I mean, he does. It does do a good job of depicting more likely what it what it was like, uh, what sort of physical pain and shame he felt. But it also doesn't go far enough in some ways because I mean, what was it he was saying um, about the shame aspect? You know, he was. You know, Jesus was spat upon. Yeah, that happened in the movie, but. I mean, he also says that almost all religious art shows Jesus with a cloth wrapped around his waist. But this is a matter of piety, not history, because in all likelihood, Jesus was just naked. He didn't have anything covering him up at all. And that would have been a full-on shaming of the Son of God, right? We can't necessarily put that in a sanctuary, right? A you know, fully naked Jesus Christ. Uh, so for some level of piety, it's good to at least represent it on some level, like what I wear, uh, what I wear on Sundays and what I usually carry around with me, you know, it's just that he's got, you know, he's got the cloth around his waist and everything. And then he's got the, uh, nails in his hands and his feet and the piercing in his side. But I mean, really he would have been much more beat up than that. Mm-hmm. He would have been much more scarred and, and, uh, torn up than that for sure. Uh, but yeah. The Passion of the Christ would miss the point, right, if you don't understand the prospect of, you know, suffering and dying for sin, shedding blood for sin. And many of the people who witnessed the actual crucifixion of Christ walked away unconverted. Yeah. You know, it's entirely possible. Yeah, it's true. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, when Jesus is saying, um, uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In Aramaic, they, they think he's calling out to Elijah. It's like they don't even know their Bibles. They don't even know their Psalms well enough to understand that that's what he's doing, right? So yeah, it's a hard thing to dive into. But like we talked about last time, the cross simultaneously shows God's wrath for sin and the salvation won by Christ for our sakes. It is both law and gospel combined in the personification of Christ on the cross, right? Um, And honestly, it's really kind of funny that not only will you get just regular Christians saying, well, it's too painful to think about, or, you know, they may not admit it offhand. They'll just kind of skirt past it or talk about something else. But even like more liberal theologians will try and explain away the crucifixion. Um, there There are two in particular that, have been causing the Lutheran Church some particular problems like Gerhard Ferdy and uh, Stephen Paulson talking about how the cross, the theology of the cross is not centered on some sort of divine, what is it, some, some sort of divine retribution for sin, uh, some sort of fulfilling of the law, because if that were the case, they argue this, and I think it's pretty ridiculous, they say if that if that were the case, then the law is greater than God. That God has to adhere to a law. That He should have just done things differently. Sophists. Yeah, it is. It is. It is sophistry for, of, of the highest order, because it's denying the atonement of Christ. Uh, the uh, you know as as has been come to known the penal substitutionary uh, theory of the atonement, or as I'd like to call it, the Anselmic 
the theory come up by Anselm so many years ago. But the thing is, is that when you do that, they also say, if it is, like, this is part of their argument, and it's actually pretty, and I'm boiling it down because they really go into it, but they basically say that if God had to punish somebody, right, for sin, and he had to do it on his own son, if you really believe that, then you believe in divine child abuse. No joke. That's what they say. It's, weird. it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's absolutely ridiculous because it's mm -hmm. like, because it's like, well, God is a, they capitalize on, you know, God is a God of love and, you know, he wouldn't do that. But the reason why Jesus suffered is because he went against the, um, the Pharisees and the high priests and the Roman authorities at the time. And he had to suffer under that, whatever, but it wasn't because he needed to have God's wrath poured out on him. It's like, well, then you know neither the scriptures nor the power therein. You don't understand. You miss the point, mm -hmm. right? It's the same sort of thing. You miss the point of the cross entirely. So, um, yeah. Any other thoughts? Any other thoughts on any of these parts? Suffering? Um, I guess I'll ask the question. Would you rather be punched or spit upon? Because that's what he asks, right? It's like, <laughs> would you rather have someone punch you in the face or spit in your face? What do y'all think? How bad will it hurt? Yeah, right? How bad is the punch? And do they have AIDS? Yeah, do they have AIDS? Oh, that's interesting. Do I deserve it? Yeah, do, yeah, it's, that's a good point, too. Which one can you recover from, the physical pain or the emotional pain? But I think it's a better question. Would you rather be punched in the face or have your enemy strip you naked? I think I'd take a punch in the face. I think that'd be better. Uh, I, black eyes are cool. Yeah, black eyes, yeah. <laughs> Better than better than the public shame of, of nakedness, right? Yeah. So actually that was kind of an interesting point to make. Um and yeah, so I do find it kind of interesting though, um that he says that uh well I guess it's it's kind of interesting because it's like up until this point, he's kind of been making the case for Lutheran theology in a very indirect way. But here at the end, he says very pointedly, you know, depending on how you read it, that while the suffering and death of Jesus might not be the center of the teaching in American Christianity, the cross remains the central event in history, the central teaching of the scriptures, and the central focus of the Lutheran church. Now, what did y'all think about that to kind of close things off? And, and, you know, specifically Jake, if you want to jump in on this too, you know, it's kind of uh, maybe a bold statement, right? It's, it's specific. It's a central teaching and focus of the Lutheran church, basically saying that Lutheran theology is separate and distinct from American Christianity. Yeah. You would have to know exactly what all these churches believe to, to state this and maybe he does maybe mm. he's done research on yeah. what they believe yeah and, and and it's not that the lutheran church hasn't been affected by these other kinds of teaching revivalism and um uh, pietism I mean, pietism came from the lutheran church in germany 
but it's not that we haven't been affected by these things, but on paper, we believe that our doctrine is pure. It's, it's good. It's good to go. And so he's making a bold claim there that, you know, if you, if you want to find some remedy from the false doctrine in American Christianity, you can find solace in the Lutheran Church, right? Um, and it's also very something that I have to add to it, and we'll stop here, but the Lutheran Church is uh, only named Lutheran. You know, people will say, well, Luther never wanted it to be, to be called the Lutheran Church because he did say, it's like, I'd rather it be called the Evangelical Church, right? Because it's all about the gospel. But then later on, Luther did say, it's like, fine, you want to call it um, the Lutheran Church? Call it the Lutheran Church, you know, because, because Luther believes in the gospel, right. you know, and that's what it means. It's like to be a Lutheran just means we believe what the church has always believed. We, we, are, we are part of the historical, you know, Catholic, you know, small C universal church, right? So maybe a bold statement, but maybe we'll get into more things later on in chapters uh, in the chapters to come. Um, so, any other things y'all want to touch on from this chapter? Something nope. we think of the Lutheran yep. Church, you can think of all the other Lutheran churches too. Right. You can think of um, churches seem to change over time, so you got to go where you think you really. The beliefs of the church fit your beliefs. Yeah, and and there should be some standard, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is why you know there are different church bodies that call themselves Lutheran, and on some level we would agree with them on certain things. I think um, you know historically, you know, de depending on the tradition, Lutheran churches would only adhere to like the Small Catechism, or only to the Augsburg Confession, or something like that. Whereas we subscribe to the entirety of the Book of Concord, right? Um, because it clarifies disputes about the Augsburg Confession and so on and so forth and things like that. It's, it's a much more richly thought out and um, pieced together doctrinal confession. Um, so yeah, I mean, it just depends on what you call Lutheran on some level. Mm -hmm. But I think that historically the Lutheran Church... Um, has been more solidly held together by the understanding that the scriptures are the word of God, the inherent, the, the inerrant inspired, the inspired inerrant and infallible word of God, and that the Lutheran confessions are a true interpretation and exposition of the scriptures. Um, and yeah, you get, you get disagreements, but it's like to be in fellowship with the Missouri Synod, you need to subscribe to the entirety of the, to the entirety of the scriptures, and to the entirety of of uh, the Book of Concord. So, um, well, I think of the original church, the Catholic Church. I mean, I think right after Christ died, it was probably pretty good. Then you had some popes who wanted to build a building, and then oh know, man, no, it was terrible. What are you talking about? It was horrible <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, and we have to be careful about that. We it it, it was tough. Because heresy popped up right away. Mm -hmm. Right away heresy popped up because you would get these people like kind of modern, like you get people who, who, who followed a certain teacher like Marcion. 
And you get Marcionites who said, basically, the Old Testament God is a God of wrath. We believe in the New Testament God. We believe in this God, but not that old God over there. And so they would deny the entirety of the Old Testament, right? And so you had to have response. It was always fighting back and forth. But like you said, I think in one of our first classes, Jake, like those heretics actually helped us solidify our doctrine because it brought forward disputes and reasons to quibble and, or really flesh out the truth of things so that you know what is genuine, you know what is true and worth holding on to, and you can let go of all the other stuff, right? But like I said, yeah, on some level it was good. On other levels it was really bad because you had a lot of fighting. You had a lot of fighting about what the truth was. And some some popes were more like warriors. Than popes, popes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the whole thing about the Bishop of Rome and all that stuff. and um, You know, it's it's kind of funny because our Lutheran confessions call the, the Pope Antichrist. So <laughs> Always have. Yeah. Not the Antichrist, but Antichrist, a Antichrist, one who is in the place of Christ and reigns where Christ should, right? That's a big distinction you need to make there. <laughs> anyway, so so I put that forward. Um, um, Amy, you were going to say something else? Or you oh, add something to it? The, something in this chapter that was like completely new to me was he was talking about, you know, some Bibles that are rimmed in red oh, around yeah. the edges. I that's pretty cool. And I always thought, oh, you know, it's just that's just a nice thing. Yeah. Like, uh -huh. The words written in red in the Gospels that Jesus uh -huh. speaks. And I was like, oh, they just picked red because it's a good contrast to black ink, you know. But oh. I was like, oh, it's because the Bible's bleeding the forgiveness of your yeah. sins. I was like, that's pretty cool. light bulb moment. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Which, you know, it's funny because I think the only one, the only book in my study that has read on the rim is uh, the TLH, the Lutheran hymnal. So mm. I guess that means it's inspired. We should go back to it. Anyways, um, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. All right. I don't mind the red hymnal. That's uh, not bad. It's not bad. Yeah. What? <laughs> you like the old Lutheran hymnal. You like it? <laughs> you grew up on it, right? Yeah. I grew up on the red one. Yeah. From day two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Page 5 and 15, you know? Yeah. 5 and 5. Reiner was a... He was your uncle and he was a Lutheran pastor, so... Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And my mother said she was holding me and... Um, Let's see. Is he was he was a pastor, yeah, and she said he snatched daddy out of my arms and baptized him. That's awesome. <laughs> she was a, she was a Camelite first Christian church. Oh, okay, Camelite. And they don't, yeah. and you know, don't baptize yeah. babies. You yeah. have to be old enough to understand it. Yeah. And so she just was furious. <laughs> <laughs> we just snatched you up and baptized. That's so great. I love it. That's 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 funny. That's funny. Um, that's funny. All right. Well, we've gone way over time. I love the conversation though. Um, this this was a good chapter. I hope you all enjoyed it too. It sounds like you did. Um, for next week, we'll we'll continue on chapter five, uh, which is uh, your name righteous. So looking forward to that one.
And uh, we will close tonight, as we usually do, with the custom of uh, praying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.